this is Kat. And this is Phoebe. We're Feminine Chaos. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Um, this is a special episode because we're actually being joined by a third person. It's a threesome. It's a thruple. Um, we're here with Jessa Crispin. And um, Jessa is the founder of the Bookslet blog, which was one of the first and best book blogs. Um, it I mean, it may actually have been the first book blog. I'm not sure. Um, and she now runs the Public Intellectual Podcast, and she writes for a whole bunch of different outlets. Um, she's extremely prolific. We'll leave her website in the show notes so you can check it out. Uh, we have her here to talk about um, sort of the, the book's discourse online and one specific beef that really captivated the attention of the internet and of Twitter, particularly um, thanks to this epic meltdown involving a man calling people disgusting worms, which we'll get to in a little while. But first, um, Jessa, welcome. Did I leave anything out that uh, that I should have mentioned? Um, no, nothing, nothing that I can think of. Um, but thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to talk about disgusting worms discourse. I think it'll be good. <laughs> It's going to be disgusting. Um, <laughs> so we've actually talked about um, another piece of yours previously on the podcast. One of our absolute favorites. I think Phoebe especially really, really liked this one. It was yes. Review. Oh my yeah. goodness. So this really, really spoke to me a lot. Um, so Pathologizing Desire um, is the name of Jess's essay in the Boston Review about age gap relationships. So this is something... Um, not only did I really enjoy reading the piece, but also it's very um, it's very feminine chaos because it's very much about. So um, I'm just going to maybe do a few quotes from it that we can discuss because I just really liked it in certain parts um, when I was just rereading the piece this morning jumped out at me. Um, one is, OK, one source of the infantilization of young women is the expansion of the word pedophile. So this is something that Kat and I have been talking about a lot on Feminine Chaos about the sort of the 30 year old, you know, ingenue or whatever, the 40 year old ingenue or, you know, as long whatever the male lifespan becomes, you know, subtract 10 years or whatever. And then but it also reminded me of another thing that I think we had meant to talk about on Feminine Chaos, but I don't know if we ever got to it. Those viral tweets about how if a man likes short women, he's a pedophile. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So yeah. it's not even just age. It's yeah. not even just age anymore. And as a short woman um, who does not pass for a child, I was both <laughs> I was torn about this discourse because um, on the one hand, it's nice to imagine that at 37 years old, I pass for a child. But it's just it's also so ridiculous. Um. That was one. Um, another, so the part that really, really jumped out at me was um, indeed, so I'm quoting again from Justice Peace, indeed, what is wrong with men has replaced what do women want as the question for our age? And I think that's very, very insightful. And that this whole question of like female desire um, in age gap relationships and just more generally, specifically in heterosexual relationships um, seems to be very much yeah i don't know do you, do would you like to expand on that yeah i mean i think it's i think it's pretty clear that um we're all trying to figure this out right i mean we're all sort of collectively now trying to figure out 
how relationships can and should work, that the old ways don't work and they're actually kind of embarrassing. There's also this sort of like, you know, this, um, uh, as uh, Indiana Saracen calls it, heteropessimism, this idea that it, that there's something inherently wrong, maybe disgusting, uh, maybe uh, oppressive and, and coercive about heterosexuality at all. And we're all aware of this um, because of, you know, 50 years of feminist writing on the subject. Um, so then what where do we go from there? And we, we are, you know, we're clearly not doing a great job of figuring that out. Like how do we love and experience intimacy and have uh, sexual contact with people who we are distinctly aware of as being our historical oppressors. Right. So I, I understand the, the chaotic response of people just like, well, what if, <laughs> What if everyone had the exact same amount of money and was born on the exact same day of the same year and, you know, had, had the exact amount of all different forms of power? Um, what if that is what makes it okay? <laughs> um, and so, I, yeah, I, I think that is sort of like psychologically understandable and yet completely deranged. Um, this sort of thinking out loud process is... Um, it's also like, how seriously do we take these tweets? I guess some people are taking mm -hmm. them seriously, but how are we meant to, are we taking them more seriously than, than we should be? Well, I think one element of this is, as is often, I think, noted the people making these tweets, the women, I should say, specifically making, um, you know, anti-men tweets will often, you know, the next tweet will be, I love my wonderful boyfriend, husband, whatever, you know, <laughs> and I think that that adds a certain twist to it all because it's it makes it seem like there's a little bit of a disconnect. Is the I want to start. Say. I want to start a, like a whole podcast that is just interviews with the husbands and boyfriends of the women who write these tweets. <laughs> I want to hear what they have to say. <laughs> They, I just think it's they're not even paying attention. I think it's not even on their radar. I think it's just sort of like, you know, women are chatting. You know, it used to be, you know, at this on the stoop. Now it's online, and the men are just like thinking they're too important for it. That's my theory. That might be it. Well, you know, it just occurred to me um, that this that topic, especially the part about the infantilization of women, may actually even tie a little bit into what we wanted to talk about today with regard to the sort of yification of literature. I'm not sure if there's a better word for that. The you know, inf the infantilization of the narratives that people have become uh, invested in. Like, you know, is there this sort of um, dumbing down or younging um of the like the love stories that we're reading um good segue but, cat <laughs> yeah but 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 i'm actually too early because what i wanted to do first was sort of redirect this back um to the conversation about books at large um because jessa you have been on this beat since before social media was a thing and i wanted to hear a little bit about how that conversation has evolved like what have you seen what has changed since you first you know started writing about books in 2002 right i mean there's definitely been a kind of flattening um intellectually in in the sense of that there's a kind of suspicion now toward um the traditional gatekeepers um 
and so just like the level of um, engagement in something that used to be considered, well, not not certainly the New York Times book review was never considered highbrow, but it was certainly considered more authoritarian, authoritarian, no, authoritative, <laughs> or authoritarian, uh, depending, you know, on um, on how you feel about romance novels or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, it used to come with this sort of more, you know, respect. And, and I think that that kind of voice has been, and for good reason, um, been brought into suspicion. So the sort of higher levels have definitely come down. Um, and then you've also seen the, the sort of rising of the, uh, you know, like just opinion um, that isn't sort of, uh, invested in ideas of gatekeeping or establishing, you know, uh, the place within the canon or whatever the fuck the New York Times thought it was doing. Um, but then, yeah, the elevation of this sort of just, well, all opinions are valid and, and we have to listen to all um, voices and so on. So it's just become this very sort of flat space um, where if you are trying to be elevated if you're trying to take literature seriously as an art form uh you're immediately sort of cast in in into suspicion you know um you're doing the patriarchy's work for them whatever um and it's become this very sort of strange space that's interesting. So when you started Book Slut, um, you know, at a time when the New York Times was maybe more authoritative than authoritarian, I think it's probably now sort of the other way around. Um, did you see it as a sort of a countercultural or anti-gatekeeping? I mean, it was almost like a webzine, right, at the start? Yeah. So there were a bunch of uh, normally very intelligent people who wrote uh, essays about how blog culture was going to be the end of literature. Um, and it turns out that they were wrong. Uh, it was it was social media. <laughs> <laughs> they just came a little early. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was definitely a kind of we're going to talk about uh, small press literature. We're going to talk about work in translation. We're going to talk about comic books and graphic novels, the kind of stuff that was being widely um, ignored. Also, uh, books by women. So definitely the New York Times at that point was just like, here are all these works by men. Um, and there was this kind of fighting against, um, you know, discrimination or just disinterest. Um, and that was kind of exciting. Um, but I think we got too far into that mode, um, and started treating that topic a little too, um, uh, just not, not in a very sort of smart or savvy way. Well, now it's kind of the only framework for yeah. talking about books. So you guys are really ahead of the curve. Yes. Yes, we, Ooh, we brought the I, culture down. We're you hurt. did this. <laughs> I have a question about this, actually. So I'm very out of the publishing loop, especially um, fiction type stuff. But I do have a question about this just as a reader, which is this um, basically like the literature versus um, sort of other forms of text divide and like how to navigate that in general. And I guess something that... I've found um, just reading both fiction and sort of 
the various opinion discourses, including tweets, but not limited to, is it seems like what, I don't know how to put this sort of, oh, this is a hard thing to articulate, but Mm -hmm. basically it becomes that anybody who isn't a sort of traditional type white male author gets cast whether they want to or not and whether their work suggests this or not into this kind of identity category and then thus leaving this vacuum where the only people who get to count as the sort of capital L literature end up being white men, thus reinforcing the very thing that ostensibly everybody right thinking is trying to change. Right. Did any of that make any sense? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. No, and and I think that that's, well, I mean, that category, I think, keeps opening up a little bit, but only to, you know, like white women. Um, but but certainly, yeah, like the this desire for this to all mean something beyond just whether or not this is a good book um, has clearly gotten out of control because now just saying um, this is not a good book. <laughs> It's somehow the most controversial statement you can say about a book, right? At the moment, like if you just say this is boring, this is not well written, this is this is you know uh, terribly plotted, etc. Um, if that book means something to someone else because of uh, representation or, or or I don't you know whatever identification, um, then you're getting into like a then you're just getting into this weird argument and you're getting hate piled on by, you know, anon- people with six followers on Twitter for eight days. It's it's mm-hmm. a very sort of strange phenomenon. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems like there is also when you're saying about that, you're not allowed to say that a book is bad. And I, I guess what I was thinking is like you are, but only if it's be- if it's supposed to be bad politically. And mm-hmm. this is not just in literature. This is like across genre. And I've written about it in terms of. Um, pardon my being a bit of an idiot, but television, which is something I've watched in my day. And um, that basically like a comedian, if they're problematic now, it's like their work is bad now. And I feel like it's just, these things are just completely mashed together. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting thing too. It's like, you know, at this point, what happens is that first a book will be identified as politically problematic and then if inevitably as that conversation continues and people start pushing back against the notion that you know that's the best measure by which to uh to rate a book you get people being like well it's also not even good it's incidentally that exactly okay this yeah. is i'm obsessed with this i'm obsessed with this when it comes to um comedians and just comedy in general and like the whole idea that something wasn't or somebody or something was never funny to begin with um <laughs> all because of something they said like last week on twitter their work from like 30 years ago is garbage um anyway yes yeah yeah no it's um you, I mean, you see it especially in uh, the sort of dragging people from their graves <laughs> to like, re, you know, oh, well, he wasn't, into, he was transphobic in the 18th century. So, uh, but we never liked him anyway. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, <laughs> yes. it's such a weird way to engage with art, but I think that it's also part of 
um, this culture that just has no idea what the value of art or literature actually is. We like we don't understand why we're supposed to appreciate it. I guess you know visual art is okay because it's extremely expensive. Uh, literature, like we we want kids to read it for these vague ideas that it builds empathy, um, which I don't. I I'm almost positive that's not true. And also that's like a weird sort of thing to say about literature in a time when we only sort of engage with it in order to see ourselves reflected back to ourselves, that we're always looking for representation. We're always looking for a sort of avatar of ourself sort of saving the world or going on some sort of quest, um, being brave and, you know, having some flaws, but ultimately, <laughs> you know, ultimately good at heart and just doing their best and uh, loved by everyone they come in contact with. Mm-hmm. Um, and and same with music. It's like, well, we don't know what that's for either anymore. So I, I it's such a, um, we're in such a strange time. And these conversations, I think, just sort of make it worse that it just gets, we get further and further away from understanding what art and culture is actually for and about. It seems a little ironic, actually, that the probably the best place at this point to explore sort of moral ambiguity and complicated narratives is on television. Yeah. That's yeah. a little sad. I mean, I love television, but it's still a little sad. <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk specifically, Jessa, about this um, this judgment you issued, which <laughs> I thought was absolutely goddamn delightful, um, but it did, you know, spark a lot of controversy. So this was in the Super Rooster tournament oh. at the, uh, the Morning News. And I understand that this is like a sort of an NCAA tournament of books um, where like a book is pitted against another book and there can be only one winner and then the the winners face off against each other to determine which is ultimately like the best book of all time. Yeah. Is that how it works? Okay. Yeah, I guess um, so. so you were assigned the the battle between Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad and Sally Rooney's Normal People, which full disclosure, neither one have I read because I'm way behind on all of this stuff. Um, and I'm just going to read aloud from <laughs> this essay. Um, I mean, there's there was honestly, it's, despite it being a very short essay, there was a lot in it that I loved. And I wish I could kind of read the whole thing, um, especially the part where you called normal people gossip girl, but with more fucking and less happening. That was brilliant. <laughs> but the thesis of this, um, and I think the part that sort of... Uh, sparked a lot of controversy, which we're, we're going to talk about a little bit more in a second. Um, you described both of these books as being, quote, for children. And you said, the easy moral lessons, the book that explains itself to you as you go along, the idea of being called to a cause that demands heroism, the predictable story arcs, and perhaps most importantly, the books that read like film or TV series treatments. This all seems to have come from that time that we thought the world was going to end and what was going to save us was a bunch of plucky teens. Uh, and then sometime later, most of the novels that people like and talk about aren't really for adults anymore. Um, and I really want to hear more about what your thoughts are on this phenomenon and why it's happening and where it's going. Um, well, I I feel like it's 
clearly because Harry Potter deranged several generations. Um, <laughs> so now that that's canceled, maybe it's all fine. I don't know because now we just have like hyper more woke versions of of Harry Potter. Like we're just trying to correct Harry Potter now. Like we're just trying to make it not anti-Semitic, classist garbage. Like we're trying to we're trying to fix Harry Potter instead of just setting it on fire, which is what we should do. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I think I think it. You know, I'm blessedly was too old. For Harry Potter, um, yeah, same. I think I was, same. Yeah, I think it was nineteen or something when the first. I I actually don't know when it came out because again, like it's for children. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention to books being released for children. Um, but, but what about woke baby? Woke? What's what? <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't don't stare into that abyss. It's better if you don't know. <laughs> There are also very hyper aware books that are board books for babies, literal often. infants. One yeah. of which is literally called "Woke Baby." Oh God. Um, okay, I don't. I I can't process this information at the moment. Um, <laughs> no, let's, let's go back to Harry Potter. <laughs> but no, I think that it just sort of um, became. I think it. <laughs> I think it traumatized a couple generations of like, oh, this is what a story is supposed to be like. This is what it's supposed to do. And then it just became this like in, this capsule that everybody was trapped in and they don't understand that there's like this whole other world that exists outside of it. So it just had this sort of dominant influence both on the marketplace um, of this is like how you create a sort of empire for yourself as a writer. Um, and then also just on you know, the the way that it just sort of continued the sort of Star Wars kind of thing, um, the sort of hyper dumbed down Joseph Campbell bullshit um, and just weaponized it. Right. And just like shot it straight into your serotonin production system of your brain and uh, grabbed hold of it. So. Um, so yeah, so I think that that is what happened. And, and so now if you're even trying to, to write a story that doesn't have wizards in it, um, that idea of like, this is how you structure a story. This is what a story is for. This is what it's supposed to do is just has like a hold on generations of writers. And, you know, Colson Whitehead used to know better. Um, he used to be a really good writer, but I think he wanted to get paid, right? Like he wanted an Amazon show. So you, that's what he got. Congratulations, Colson Whitehead. Um, I don't know that his work was so good that we need to mourn the loss of, you know, the first two books that he wrote. Um, but ultimately, um, it deranged a lot of people of just like, well, you can't make money writing books for adults anymore. Might as well just go for and hope for like the Netflix adaptation. Ooh, I have so many thoughts on this and it's impossible to know where to begin. But one is just that I guess there's like no, what from what you're saying, it seems like there's like sometimes when I read about, you know, the YA world drama and just the sort of requirements of um, a book being not just, you know, readable, but also, or even more so like, politically exactly where it needs to be and then some there's sort of for fiction writers it's almost like there's no getting out of that trap um, even if you're ostensibly not writing YA mm -hmm. 
Yeah, Jess, do you think that this applies equally to like literary fiction as it does to genre fiction, um, things like thrillers? I, I keep thinking about this, um, uh, I'm trying to think about what, there's this writer, Hillary Kelly, who described it a particular way. I think it was, you know, the, the rise of these thriller novels for women by women where the main character is basically a sociopath. And it's sort of right. like, a, like a gone girl thing, but although gone girl, I think it was ultimately like, smarter than most of these books and the rest of them are trying to be gone girl. But um, how do you think that, you know, that sort of, I mean, that's a trend in and of itself. How do you think that fits in? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's what's, Oh, what's her name? The, the Eileen book. Um, You know, so much of that thriller. um, uh, I, I do agree that Gone Girl is so much smarter and, and more savvy about um, this storyline than the stuff that it seems to have inspired. Um, but I think that uh, we can't blame Gone Girl for all of it because, you know, a lot of it was sort of already in the works, um, already the sort of... Um, women in peril true crime boom starting that was obviously going to have a lot of influence on on literature um but uh but yeah no i I think it's also very similar if just like this is how you tell a story these are the beats that you need to hit um in order to keep the focus of a, a very sort of scattered attention um and this is also the kind of story that you need to tell in order to get the uh, adaptation deal because books alone don't make you enough money to be, you know, um, to summer in Geneva. I don't know what people do anymore with their money. (laughs) Oh, so I want to connect actually um, the normal people part with the, with your Boston review essay, if I may. So I have read normal people and I liked it because I'm I like all sorts of garbage. So maybe that, I don't know that that really tells us anything. But I was thinking about it. So after reading it, I tried to watch the show based mm-hmm. on it and like couldn't get through it because I just felt too old for it. It really was it was, you know, Gossip Girl, Dawson's Creek, whatever. And it just seemed like something very much um, like it's it's visually like you have to find it appealing to look at young people and to either identify with them or, you know, just sort of hate yourself for not looking like them or whatever it was. And I just, I wasn't really feeling it, but this in turn reminds me um, of, makes me, not really reminds me, but makes me think of a line, Jessa, from your Boston Review essay. Um, So this, um, perhaps it is this anxiety, the fear of living the second half of one's life away from male attention and desire that fuels much of the performed concern of the age gap relationship projected onto the seemingly uncontrollable male uh, libido. So what I'm thinking about, and I'm not really saying it so clearly, but basically for something like even a work that's in text, because it needs to have this potential um, to be adapted, Mm -hmm. there needs to be kind of a a very excessively hot young woman at the center of it often. Right. And maybe that's part of it. And that was something weird with, with normal people where, you know, the, the young woman at the center of it is very, she's, it's very much like the sort of fashion model narrative of 
everybody thought I was, you know, gawky and weird in high school. But then, of course, there's the after where she's the most conventionally appealing person possible. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, again, it's one of the things that made me think of it as a YA novel because the sort of makeover, um, particularly like once you get away from the, you know, like once you go to college or something like that, like you, you blossom into this much more appealing version of yourself, right? Like that it's just sort of natural that it, that it will happen, that you'll figure out eyeliner and your whole world will change or whatever. Um, and you know, how many, how many teen, movies have we seen with that exact with that exact plot line right of like oh she's too embarrassing to fuck uh oh she took off her overalls and put on a skirt and now she's immensely fuckable um so yeah i mean it's it's taking these really easy beats that have been passed on in sort of uh YA literature in the in the teenage movie and in, in um in television in general and just because you're writing it <laughs> on paper doesn't elevate it right it's the same it's the same stuff it's just without um you know we think of books as being a higher form of art and clearly they're not clearly most of it is garbage um but now we're not we're not supposed to say that but i mean this whole thing about how um young women have to be attractive in order to be interesting. They have to be sort of um, fragile and, and, and beautiful and dewy and vulnerable and, you know, all of these sorts of things that also come out of um, TV culture, uh, movie culture. Um, You know, I thought because I was a naive idiot, uh, that feminism would sort of uh, give us a wider range of feminine experience. But none of us wants to think of us, think of ourselves as the old hag. None of us wants to think about like... um, This connects so much with the whole Me Too angle, which I'm just going to throw in because, you know, why not? But this idea of of the universal... So this is something I've written about a bit and I'm pretty fascinated by how there's this like universal narrative of if I leave the house men just follow me everywhere yeah. and it's yeah. constant and it doesn't matter I could be in the most rural spot it doesn't matter there's just like a thousand men and they're all panting if I oh. leave the house yeah and that is not going to be every woman's experience for so many reasons and it, you would think that feminism would be able to kind of address that but instead it's like if you say that that either that that isn't your experience then you're some you're you know dismissing the cause or if you're saying that you wish it were your experience more than it is then you're a real traitor um anyway yeah, yeah. No, it's almost it, like uh, it's like feminism became the right of every woman to be panted after when it really should have been like the right of women to have a wider breadth of experience and rewarding experience than being panted after yeah, uh, you know, I still mourn this uh, project I was going to do with Laura Kipnis. We were going to collaborate on a book on female ugliness, um, and then oh, we we both got distracted. Why not? And, and no, do it, do it, do it. Please do this. Please do this. I'm Consider this my verbal pre-order. I would like to read this. I would read the hell out of that book. Oh my god! Please make yes, it real. Yes, please, please make it real. Whoever, if it helps, 
in any way that we have said this, we have two readers. <laughs> I'm I'm just I yeah, I'm just pressuring Laura Kipnis now by making this public. I'll just mention it in every every public setting until she uh, acquiesces and starts uh agreeing to do it with me again. Um but yeah, no <laughs> it's sexual harassment a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, no, the def the default female experience is is young and beautiful and vulnerable and fragile, right? And and somehow, um, I don't know, like even in the 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 dumb new Nicole Kidman show, like just dewy and open mouthed and you know surgically altered in into this eternal creepy doll-like girlhood and oh what's happening my husband murdered him oh and i'm like this is you know she made nicole kidman made all these sort of um statements about she wants to make TV and movies that are empowering to women. Like she created this whole production company for it and all, and it's been big little lies. And, um, and, and now this, which the undoing, I guess is, is what it's called, but it's, I don't know, like that is seen as some sort of universal experience. And we just do not recognize that that's what, 5% of women on the planet at any given time that are just so desirable and and young and fresh and also incapable of living a life. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway. Oh, but this is a term for this. Oh, she calls it photogenic yeah. feminism. And oh, yeah. It's, well, that's because you know, of Emily Radajkowski being like the... Um, it's not just that she has a platform, but that you're supposed to see something she's written inevitably, you know, an article accompanied by a full body shot of her looking spectacular. And you're supposed to say, I see my experience. In this. Right. Yeah. What's fascinating to me is that now, like, I mean, there's this whole ecosystem basically dedicated to that idea, to making art kind of in that mold. And you have, you know, all of these female-led production companies, Reese Witherspoon has hers, Mila Kunis has one, Nicole Kidman has hers, um, dedicated to adapting novels into, you know, novels written in the vein of photogenic feminism um, mm -hmm. about these sort of dewy, you know, hapless women um, for, you know, TV that is then in and of itself photogenically feminist. And it's, yeah, it's like, it just, it goes on and on. Yeah. I mean, at least Eva Longoria's production company gave us John Wick, right? Like at least. <laughs> that's her. Oh, thank yeah, you, Eva Longoria. We should, we should <laughs> celebrate that more often than we do whatever Nicole Kidman is doing. Right. Um, so when we talk about like the sort of infantilizing of, of, you know, of women and in the infantilizing of the narratives around women, there's always this helplessness. There's always this ingenue role at the center of it. Um, what does that have to do or does it have anything to do with the sort of the, the way that all all of our literary narratives are also moving in that direction. Is there like a yearning for this on the part of female readers or is it the women writing the books that are doing this? Well, it has to, I think it has to be both, right? I mean, it's um, clearly there is an experience within a lot of women of feeling like you don't have agency. Um, but then to sort of fetishize it, I think is, is, psychologically n not a great idea um to kind of establish 
you know, I mean, there's a lot of sort of things going on in the culture in general that creates a sense of identity out of a specific trauma or harm done to you, right? That 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 is what creates a sense of solidarity these days that that's what gets you listened to and and so then you identify with it in ways that are potentially limiting as far as like how you might want to live a life um and and so i think these stories sort of reinforce that the most interesting thing about you is this terrible thing that you had to overcome and that that that's the center point of so many YA novels, even if it's like um, in this sort of Hunger Games way of, of like there's this dystopian uh, fascist government and it hurt your sister or whatever. But but still, it's that sense of um, of uh, a sort of individualized feeling of trauma and you're overcoming that is the heroic quest that you have to go on and and. So I think that it's reinforced from both sides, but that it's kind of a psychological trap. Well, do you think it's maybe like a sort of a double, like it's supposed to do two different things. Um, So there's on the one hand, focusing on the young and vulnerable woman is a way of having a victim narrative, but it's also a way of being titillating and of having this potential to attract a wider audience drawn to just, you know, pretty shiny, whatever, you know? Right. Um, So I think that that's, so you have like, like it would be taboo to say that it's like privileged to be, you know, a young, beautiful woman in any way. But that is also kind of, I mean, obviously that's what sells um, certainly once you're talking about the visual realm, but apparently not just. Right. I mean, even for something like, um the like the netflix the ratchet like we're going to tell uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest from the perspective of the nurse because of course she can't just be like she can't just be a bad person there has to be some sort of trauma that created this sort of badness right so every sort of um and I understand like the impulse to correct the narrative that's been told about you for such a long time, um, that, that you're bad, you're evil, you're, you're slutty, you're, uh, sinful, whatever. Like that's been so much of the dominant narrative about women in literature and art. So I, I understand wanting to correct that, but to correct it with, I'm just so innocent. I'm like a little baby, um, is, is weird. Um, and also probably not very helpful ultimately. Um, but we need every story about women now needs it to be, um, about, victimization. It needs to be about innocence. Uh, it needs to be about trauma. Um, and if you're not writing in that mode, it's it's extremely uh, hard to get attention, I think. Well, this is something, this is another real feminine chaos topic, but just that sort of women as either in the oppressed role or the only other sort of conceivable possibility is that certain women might be the oppressor and the ultimate oppressor, and 53% of those women voted supposedly, (laughs) you know, we all know where this is going. Um, Yeah, so I think that, I wonder how that's going to end up playing out in literature, whether there's going to be more sort of like, 
Karen literature. I mean, I for one just, I just hope that bad, evil, slutty, and sinful is the title of the biography someone writes about me one day. I would be very (laughs) satisfied with that. Um, But it's interesting too, this notion of, of trauma as central to the journey of all of these characters, Um, especially because at the same time as there's this idea that, you know, trauma is the, you know, the hero's journey, there's quite an incentive never to actually get over it because once you do, you're no longer interesting. That Mm -hmm. was the thing that made you interesting. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, these stories don't end with like, well, I mean, obviously there's like the healing arc and the recovery arc, the eat, pray, love kind of dominant uh, thing for a while. But um, but yeah, no, it, it's always a part of you. It will always be with you. It is an essential part of your of yourself and, and the way that you even sort of conceptualize yourself and who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I wanted to, you know, we're, we're so deep into this and it's so interesting, but I also really wanted to talk about the reaction to your piece at the morning news, <laughs> which was in and of itself something, um, I don't know, I think, I think that it represents something broader happening in the discourse about popular culture and about literature. So needless to say, describing these two books, um, which are sort of beloved by a certain literary or pseudo-literary overclass, especially like the sort of where there's this overlap between them and blue check media, whatever, Mm -hmm. Twitter people, um, there was a lot of unhappiness. And the top comment, well, the top comment actually on on this piece was from another judge in the tournament saying she'd entered the discussion just to say, what the fuck? <laughs> um, not, not super meaningful, in my opinion. But then the next two comments um, were, I think, really interesting to me and I think really representative of the the defense that you always see rise up when somebody um, is perceived to have like impugned YA as a genre. Oh. Um, so the first, uh, this is from commenter Carrie writes, I'm a school librarian and this judgment is extremely unfair to the wonderful books for kids and teens that are written. And it is disrespectful to children and teens. Kids and teens are smart and the books written for them ask big questions about the world. I don't read books for children because I'm not a child as tiresome and unoriginal reading this here in a place where usually literature is celebrated is a real punch in the gut. So Mm -hmm. you really, you really hurt Carrie's feelings, Jessa. Um, And then the response to this, and this was like the, just like the fucking ultimate. Okay. um, This is from somebody identified as it's only Zach wrote, particularly for readers from marginalized communities of all kinds who have a better chance finding Mm. their communities represented Mm. in YA books than elsewhere. Um, So I feel like this- The underrepresented populations represented in normal people. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Right. Who are are college kids. (laughs) Not represented- Good looking young white men who end up getting an MFA. It's- it's it's pretty underrepresented in literature. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But but this is always this is how it always frames itself, this argument. It's how dare you impugn YA, which is not only noble and valuable, it's more noble and more valuable mm-hmm. than literature at large because it's correcting for this, you know, historic injustice um, you know, that you know 
kids kids can see themselves in these books where they couldn't in you know every book that came before them Ooh, this actually are there is there a gender breakdown of who's reading these books is it like only girls like mostly of the girls. young people is it mostly girls no yeah. okay and zach and zach, and zach. Yeah, but Zach is probably Zach is probably not a teen. None of these people are teens. They're well, just yeah. speaking on behalf of teens, of course. Yeah, I mean, well, I think it was the uh, the Champagne Sharks podcast uh, Twitter account that pointed out that most of the people making this argument about but YA is so good for marginalized communities are white, right? And, and primarily white women making this particular argument um there's also um this is zach erasure and i will not have (laughs) um so yeah i mean it's so much of um assuming i guess that a a teenager would look to and i can't even name (laughs) I can't even I can't even name like a a YA series that's meant for uh a, like a black teenage kid. Like I I, I honest like I don't I don't know uh I'm sure that there's like some eight volume sci-fi fantasy series um that is that was written specifically for for this uh imaginary child that everybody is worried about in the comment section of the morning news. Um but but needs that but wouldn't connect to like james baldwin right or or anything else like wouldn't connect to charles dickens wouldn't connect to it has to be specifically geared and managed and processed um toward him as he uh, sort of exists in this imaginary um marginalized setting um in for him to relate to it. it has to reflect him back directly it can't be from another time it can't be from another gender it can't be from anything else you know um there's also like this sort of weird classism that always creeps up in these arguments about well you know how could we expect working class kids to uh understand shakespeare um and so for me to suggest that uh that kids should be taught Charles Dickens in high school or whatever is classist. And it's just so how it always ends up sort of um, uh, discriminating against the very person that they are pretending to be concerned about by saying, actually, they're too dumb to read real literature. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Very much that dynamic where it's people who are very much um, out of the loop of whoever um, they think they're defending um, Mm -hmm. end up just insulting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I just wonder about this whole notion, though, of youth as an inherently marginalized group and what that even means and like how to even make sense of it, because it's just everybody's going to be young at one point. It's not the same as class or race or gender or anything like that it's just you know you're young and then you know if if all goes well you're not i don't know is it that's that's kind of crucial that you're supposed to eventually grow up Mm -hmm. right and how i i guess the other part of this is like why am why is what i'm saying that 
books for children, books written for children or for, or for children, like how is that discriminating against children? I'm saying it for them, like I'm, I'm giving it to them let them have normal people. You know, I, when you're 15, it might, it might be mistaken for being, you know, profound. Um, but- I thought it was pretty profound that I'm old, but okay. So in its defense, what I am going to say, and I have read other, you know, like actual books as well. And if you read Proust, I mean, it's often like a lot of Proust reminded me of Seinfeld because I think there are just certain narratives. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be devil's advocate here and say that I think there are, you know, eternal stories that just, you know, they can be told in more or less sophisticated ways. But the fact that a story is about a teenage boy hiding a relationship with a an attractive but uncool girl, I think I did find that kind of interesting in the sense Yes, it kind of now I'm thinking about, yeah, all the things where like she takes her glasses off or Taylor Swift or whatever. But I don't know. I thought it was it's a thing. It's a thing in the world. And I I don't know that necessarily talking about sort of classic high school issues is necessarily like I guess here's what I'm trying to say is like what determines whether a soppy love story is YA or not? Is it the age of the people in it? Is it the sophistication of the writing? Is it the accessibility of the writing? Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, I I think that you can write in a very sort of accessible way and still be profound. I guess my issue with, um, with normal people specifically, as far as like, this is a book for children is the way that it sort of relied on these very well-worn tropes without bringing anything new or interesting. And I know that you can tell the story of like um, love between two different classes, uh, love between, you know, uh, uh, two different figures that that can't come together for various reasons. And that, and it's a great story and and clearly it's been told for centuries and centuries. Um, but to me, like the the over reliance on like uh, pro anorexia messaging and the the sort of insistence on her fragility and right, right, and then that lends itself, like you say, to the adaptation in which somebody can be cast who's exactly who would be cast in that. Yeah, yeah. So to me, it just um, it just sort of recycled a lot of material that other people have been using without doing anything new or interesting and and sort of creating a tv show version of it as it went along um Mm -hmm. and also sort of like the way that it would constantly explain itself to the reader of like this is what i'm doing like especially with the the sort of weird politics of it um uh, i thought was also very uh uh worrying um but yeah did you read her other what was her earlier book i know i read it and i've completely forgotten yeah yeah uh no i didn't read that one although i am i am told that it is vastly superior so i mean i i'm an as i said a garbage lover and like the second one more but i do think conversations with friends was different in that even though it kind of was also very um photogenic feminism potential Mm -hmm. it was just it was a bit different. You know what I mean? Like the storyline was just a little different and a little less sort of easily digested, maybe. Mm. 
There's something so funny to me about you calling yourself a garbage lover when you just said that Proust reminded you of Seinfeld. Like, I'm still trying to wrap my head around that comment. Um, Okay, so I mean, I do. I have a PhD in literature, in in French literature specifically, and I, (laughs) but I also am a great consumer of all sorts of junk. This is just Um, making me feel like I need to give In Search of Lost Time another chance. I couldn't get through it the first time I tried, but. Um, so, oh God, where I was, I had a question. It's right on the tip of my tongue. Shit. It'll come back to me. You guys talk about something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess, well, oh, a question I had that's kind of like a sort of stepping back question for Jessa is just how, um, you think this all relates to kind of politics specifically, U.S. politics, and the sort of dumbing down of discourse generally. Um, Because I think I always thought of myself as somebody who, like, I was never a wonk, you know what I mean? Like, I I could read a newspaper, but I didn't really know, like, the nitty gritty of what's happening. And then all of a sudden, there's this president who, you know, he's like, it's okay, you can all be idiots, it's fine, it's better even to be an idiot. And I feel like there's something maybe just more generally in the culture of this kind of like the idiot's revenge moment, the dumb down everything, like, like it's okay. And in fact, in fact, to not be kind of an idiot is a problem. Right. I think that it also goes into this sort of um, electing or just sort of elevating out of nowhere um, some random extremely pretty person to speak on behalf of an entire population right so um when when sort of feminism was mainstreaming itself um you had just had like a ton of people who didn't know anything about feminism suddenly you know uh deciding what the what the feminist discourse was going to be about and it was going to be about tv and it was going to be about you know size acceptance and it was going to be about um these sort of grievances with with popular culture and so on um and there and there was a sense of like you don't have to you know roxane gay going on you don't have to read andrea dworkin you don't have to read second wave feminism in order to be a feminist spokesperson and um and so I think that it's not just like uh, Trump and uh, the various sort of uh, Trump people. There was something in our uh, in our culture, even with the sort of academic culture, even with these people who had graduate degrees, uh, suddenly saying, "Yeah, you don't you don't have to you don't have to do you don't have to do anything. You don't have to think about it. You just have I to." I feel know. like I have to atone as as a person with a graduate degree Ooh. who's a bit of an idiot. <laughs> Um, but this actually, this this I finally remembered what it was I wanted to say, and this kind of circles back to it, um, which is you know this notion of like it's okay to be you know it's okay to basically speak from a place of ignorance. It's okay not to read this. Um, so when you were talking about normal people and the response to you know you identifying it as a book for children, I think that part of the problem is this defensiveness um, that people feel called out when you say it's for children what they hear is it's not for you. They feel like you're trying to take it away from them or shame them mm-hmm. for, for wanting it. Yeah. Um, and it's ultimately, it's a, it's a book. It takes, you know, about four hours to read and, uh, and it, and it's just a book. Um, I will not dispute the four hours thing. <laughs> That's fair. 
it's, it's and and I'm not even trying to disparage it by saying you can read it in four hours. It's a it's a lovely length uh, for a novel these days when we all have a lot of things to do. But um, I I do think that um, you know we have partly because of this sort of um, uh, putting trauma at the at the center of our being and our sense of self, like. Um, work that speaks to that in some way, work that we we find uh, represents us or that we can identify with them becomes also part of this identity. Like we, we don't have great a great sense of self anymore. Um, and so we look to these sort of consumable goods to fill in the gaps. Um, and so when you say this is not very good, you know, and if you say Harry Potter is not a very good book and you have been using your the house that the sorting hat put you in on a flash game on a browser um, in your Twitter bio for eight years, like what is now? What <laughs> I feel very glad Harry Potter passed me by. It just seems like a whole discourse. I remember there were like a few weeks there where you had to have strong opinions um, on J.K. Rowling, Rowling, whatever. You had to have a strong. And I just like, I just was like, I reject. Like, I am opting out. And I think at one point I even like tweeted like, I have nothing. I am not in this. And like, that's just a prompt for like the people with the teams as like, I don't even care about this at all. It's like not my you're, thing. You're Help showing me. your non Harry Potter caring about privilege, you know, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That. Um, but so, okay. So but I think this is a good segue um, into talking about a spe- this more specific conflict between classic literature writ large and contemporary YA and the people who love the latter and resent the former. Um, so oh, this-, this is beautiful. Oh my goodness. That, that whole thing, that whole thing. Oh my God. Um, You're about to wade into an absolute internet mire of ridiculous drama. Um, so disgusting worms <laughs> so this is it's so weird it's like this it's this thing that exists in the culture where anything created before five minutes ago is inherently problematic and wrong which mm-hmm. is something i've been talking about but i didn't realize that people like so literally thought this until seeing these threads and people literally like this is a thing people think and it's so weird yeah ah cat could you please explain it Yeah, all right, I'm going to try to sum this up. It's really fucking convoluted, but I'm going to sum it up as best I can. Um, So basically, there was agitation happening in the YA fiction Twitter sphere about the classics. Um, One woman, Lorena Herman, wrote she uh, she's uh, an educator who has this initiative called disrupt texts which is basically aimed at um replacing the classics in school curriculums with more contemporary stuff that supposedly will speak more to um you know to today's young people and especially to the marginalized young people that we're always invoking as being you know our primary concern here um so she wrote this tweet saying basically that like every book written before 1950 has problematic values baked into it and Mm -hmm. you know that there's no getting around that and therefore that's why we need to like replace these books in the 
uh, curriculum. This spawned a lot of conversation um, on young adult fiction Twitter, particularly a thread by the writer Ellen O, um, where she just started kind of individually, like one at a time, trashing the classics. Um, and there was... I, I actually don't have this thread in front of me, but um, I remember a peak moment was where the, the the conversation landed on Huck Finn and everyone started talking about how Huck Finn is about how racism is good, um, which was, <laughs> that was great. It was so great. Um, this spawned a backlash as people who enjoy reading start started to notice it. Um, you had people coming in saying like, you know, YA is you know, is not the classics, why I will never be the classics. Um, the classics have value and here's why. And then the backlash to the backlash came from this writer, David Bowles. Um, he wrote a really, really long thread, which I will link to in the show notes, <laughs> but the peak moment, um, which has now like, it's just taken on a life of its own. And I can actually recite this tweet verbatim because my husband and I spent like all night just like doing performance art of it back and forth to each other in different it's been It's been a special sort of lockdown era, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it said, you disgusting worms. I can read in 12 different languages. Oh I have a MA in English and a doctorate in education. And even I think the classics are shit for modern kids. You're not on my level. Trust me. So take a motherfucking seat <laughs> and leave my people alone. <laughs> Who is this person in the world, apart from these qualifications that I have not, you know, fact-checked, especially the languages, but... Is this he's, somebody, is he an educator of some sort of, of yeah, the youth? Uh, he's a teacher. Um, okay. He's also an author of young adult fiction. I actually know him best as the man who wrote um, like a scathing diatribe against the book American Dirt that made clear mm. that he'd actually not read the book, <laughs> <laughs> which was awkward to say the least. It was in the New York Times. There's still been no correction. It's really, really weird that they have not done something about the fact that this guy wrote like a factually inaccurate, you know, rant about something that that didn't maybe happen. he had a copy of American dirt given to him that was in one of the languages he doesn't speak one of the rare <laughs> it's entirely possible um yeah I really want to know what the what the 12 languages are but I digress I'm anyway. sorry, but there's oh can I just say that there's a so Benny dorm it's a really really trashy British show that I watch um there's a character who says I could speak six languages and then he's like pressed on like which and he he's just like stumped basically and he just, like, starts <laughs> randomly trying to grasp at what things might be but anyway he's like that guy one of them is pig latin um, i think it might be but yeah i you know i'm so fascinated by this whole debate especially because um it is like the peak of the ya is noble and better than any other literature that has ever existed discourse and mm -hmm. um Basically, what I wanted to talk about is like, why are YA writers like this or YA's <laughs> most um, most avid defenders? Like, why are they like this? It's such a mystery, isn't it? I mean, the whole, I mean, there was that whole thing where a YA writer was, um, was 
like created this whole bullying campaign against a teenage girl because she, the teenage girl didn't want to read a YA book for. Oh my goodness! Yes, yeah, that thing. And Sarah so Reese Brennan, I think, right or no, Sarah De- Sorry, Sarah Dessen. I. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I was slandered. I slandered the wrong Sarah. <laughs> Sarah Dessen. Yeah, so they always they always hold themselves up as being the defenders of the teens and the defenders of these marginalized communities that they are serving so much better than anybody else. Um, and and yet um they'll absolutely try to destroy you even if you are one of these people. <laughs> um but if, I don't I don't know. I, I don't know any YA writers. I mean, well, you know one now. (laughs) I was going to say, I published two YA novels um, in 2012 and 2014, which was, uh, I would say, a different moment in YA than it currently is. Um, You know, that was sort of like the peak of of the genre when like a lot of adults were reading it and there were a lot of, you know, I mean, it was like Twilight and The Hunger Games and John Green doing his thing, but there was also room because it was such a popular genre for... Um, kind of experimentation for people to write stuff that was a little dark and a little bit weird um, and a little more literary. But that said, um, it was still, you know, books for teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like, isn't it maybe beyond? I mean, so there, it seems like there are two things, like there's the YA specific one of just the level of like cancellation focus, which seems maybe like extreme but then there is, I think, just a more general thing in the culture of anytime anything is written about. So, like, again, not to keep bringing up television, but if you watch BritBox, which is it's like Netflix, but for a lot of often very old British sitcoms, there is a warning now in front of different episodes or different shows saying this contains the values or like the language and values of the time before you can, you know, watch the thing. And some have actually just been completely removed, like some episodes, at least one I'm thinking of. But like, there's a disclaimer now on stuff, like it's old. And I just think that that's something that's like seeped into the culture more generally. And I think it's really dangerous, both because, you know, well, that's sort of obvious reasons, but also sometimes something from an earlier time is more, you know, good so to speak for lack of a better term than stuff from now and this notion that there's just this pure progress just seems so completely inaccurate about the world um yeah no it and i i don't know are we just like that bad at understanding that just because somebody is good at one thing they might not be great at others like i don't know that there seems to be this sort of striving towards purity to for always sort of managing your own opinions based on uh, what the discourse is telling you is the best opinion to have about these things. And, and, but there just seems like to be this, you know, if, if a, if a person wrote a great book, but they also like murdered somebody, like we can't, we can't manage it. We can't deal with the complexity of it. We can't manage with the, the sort of, questionable morality of it um and yeah i mean uh, i don't know it's so exhausting to try to figure out how we got to this particular moment where we just can't see ourselves very clearly and we also can't see anybody else clearly either um 
What's funny is that I think that we actually have an easier time dealing with a like a huge bad act like that to say, well, you know, this person murdered somebody, but they are they also made you know like great art. Um, I'm thinking of I'm actually thinking of like Caravaggio right now, um, who was you know a murderer, but also a fantastically talented painter. But we have a much harder time with like this person wrote a great book, but they were a bad boyfriend, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the weirdest thing to me is the the sort of dragging up the way that people treat uh, romantic partners as, as being some sort of uh, big gotcha of just like, well, everything now is, is completely questionable because you drunkenly, you know, kissed somebody and didn't understand that they weren't really in the mood for being kissed. I, you know, I mean, you, you know, Diaz was, I don't particularly like uh, his, his literature, but he was canceled for that. <laughs> it was, and, and there was always this implication that there, oh, there's going to be these more revelations. There's going to be more information, just wait, other accusers, and they never came. Um, uh, but people were completely, people took his book out of libraries based on this sort of one story of a forced kiss and then this sort of promise of worse yet told uh, infractions. Um, and and people lost their minds. People were completely unable to manage it. And then they decided it was just easier if we just didn't have access to his books anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think one of the things about just to, to loop this back into the YA conversation um, is that people who write YA and I, I didn't make up this concept or I didn't come up with it myself. I remember reading it somewhere. I no longer remember where um, was that like YA writers increasingly see themselves more as educators or as like moral like a form of moral guidance um almost like a like a parent figure in the lives of their readers than they do um as artists or as storytellers yeah i don't i don't think that we should ever listen to somebody who wants to volunteer themselves as some sort of like moral arbiter of anything um yeah that's that's super creepy and weird it's so funny. I mean, I this was the, the thing that I remember seeing as like a shift in the community that I found at the time baffling because I was, you know, I was still writing in that space. Um, this was like maybe around 2014. You started seeing these threads from, you know, from published authors writing about I remember this one woman in particular um, wrote about how like, you know, she she's like, I stay up at night just, you know, like thinking about, you know, the immense responsibility I have as an author of books for young people, the immense harm that I might do if I don't like adequately convey like perfect pansexual representation in right. my, in my YA novel about two teenagers who meet at a voting booth and fall in love, you know? Um, and there was like almost this, I mean, not, you know, it sounds like I'm making fun of, of this concept. And I guess maybe I am a little bit just because it's, you know, it's, it's sort of a cliche at this point. Um, but it's just more like this sense of self-importance, like this idea that, you know, that a child might read your book and, you know, depending on whether you like laid out your language exactly right, they're going to either be like lifted up or they're going to be ruined. Right. Yeah. I guess a part of this that I find really strange is this idea that 
in these sort of older works or in the mainstream literary culture that because I'm, you know, a cis white woman or whatever, I'm seeing my experience constantly reflected back to me that I'm always being adequately uh, represented by, I guess, Claire Danes or something like because, you know, uh, we both our faces get super blotchy when we cry, like I'm supposed <laughs> to identify with her on some level. Um, but again, like is that thing of representation or reflection in literature, um, does any, did anybody before 20 years ago, like go to Proust for, for that, to find themselves in it? Like, I can't think of a work of art or literature from when I was a teenager living in, you know, uh, rural Kansas, I guess Sarah Plain and Tall, I was supposed to identify with, like maybe some Willa Cather, like, you know, that experience is not found in the great novels of, of American literature. And I never really expected it to be. I never expected my story to be told to me. That's fucking boring. Why would I, why would I want to look for that? Well, I think um, there's been a, a change in terms of what's considered the, an identity work, right? Um, so like, I think of Philip Roth as somebody who, you know, he's very much now like, was whatever, you know, uh, old white male, cis, straight, rich, whatever, you know, the ultimate establishment. Mm -hmm. But he I mean, at the time, you know, that was like, in a sense, I mean, he he himself rejected this, but that was sort of interpreted as like Jewish identity writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, so I think that there's just the categories themselves shift, right? I think that's another um, kind of interesting twist to all of it. Yeah. yeah, whiteness has become like this enormous blob. And I guess we're all, because we're white, supposed to see ourselves within this blob that it, like it's just this featureless mass. And we're like, yes, this is, this is also, this is, this has to be me because it's Tom Cruise, right? Like it's, uh, but I guess, you know, he's a cancer. I'm a cancer. It's very representative. <laughs> yeah, this reminds me actually of a time that I was I was talking about how I, you know, I didn't think Captain Marvel, you know, just to like go as lowbrow as humanly possible. Um, you know, we're entering the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I did not think Captain Marvel was like the ultimate in hero representation for women or for young girls um mm -hmm. and then i was like you know when i was growing up the the stories that i identified with the most um i mean as like a, a little kid i loved john belairs who wrote about like this sort of nerdy kid who was like constantly coming into contact with like ghosts and dark magic even though he was like terrified of everything mm -hmm. um i identified really really hard with this guy you know this this boy um because i also was you know terrified of everything <laughs> um but i remember somebody saying well you know you could identify with these you know with these characters because they looked like your brother and they looked like your father and i was like my you know my father did not look like bilbo baggins it's it's just <laughs> you know it's, it's such a stretch to say well like these characters were white and they resembled people in your life and therefore you know you could connect with them in a way that you know somebody who was a little tanner than you could not right i mean doesn't captain marvel like essentially commit genocide at the end of that movie um right like she blows up like this whole ship that has an entire race of people on it <laughs> um so i guess 
I guess Hillary Clinton now has like, you know, uh, some representation in film. But um, I think that was uh, actually the bad guy who who blew up or who tried to blow up the ship. I think didn't she she did it. She blew up the ship. I don't know. I can't remember. I was too distracted by how she looked in her um, you know, in her in her special spandex suit, which yeah. like, you know, I, I don't identify with that either, alas. <laughs> <laughs> Not represented. Yeah, but again, like I this isn't this isn't this isn't what art is is for. And and it, obviously it's simplistic to say art is for anything in particular, but um yeah, I think there is some value in, uh, you know, obviously when you're shut out of uh, being able to um, speak for yourself or present your own story and when you don't see yourself reflected in the culture, um, it is harmful. But then to think that that's the ultimate goal, um, you know, it, and also then to... You know, this this is one of the sort of frustrating things with contemporary feminism, with uh, women sort of in, insisting that anything from 50 years ago is, is problematic about women. And we shouldn't as as if as if women haven't always participated in, in, in culture, haven't always written music, haven't always written books, haven't always painted uh, and, and so on to just write out that history because it doesn't adequately reflect your experience as a as a modern woman is 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 i think harmful to well everything i don't know like, i wonder it, how much is just like oh sorry evolve into a some sort of uh boring horrific rant about about this subject well i just wonder how much is like a confusion of sort of what are effectively hr questions about who you know works in publishing who gets hired for different things and sort of that gets sort of mashed up in a very um, unhelpful way with the creations themselves and this question of like what the content is of each book you know because mm. I think there are ways of addressing you know representation in a roundabout way where I think yes I, I do think that you know I'm okay I'm, I'm boringly PC in this way but I do think that representation in all of this is important but not in the sense of like needing to just kind of like retrofit art to fit something i think it's more just about like removing barriers that exist in the actual world to who can work in publishing for example like mm -hmm. making it so that you don't have to be somebody not it's not just about race but you know like that you don't have you know like that you could afford to work in publishing right if you're not um independently wealthy that would be something and right. that has been written about by others plenty but yeah I mean I think that there are ways of kind of making everybody happy in a way that are just ignored because they're too they're both too easy and too difficult you know they would involve like money actually like going from haves to have nots which is not something people actually like to do it's much more fun to just be like ranting on twitter than you know closing wealth gaps and things like that right or decentralizing the publishing industry from new york city um which may happen if things stay you know as they are now but they also probably won't <laughs> <laughs> they probably i mean yeah they, they probably won't but yeah no it's um no it's 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 very strange um to see how things sort of progressed over the last sort of 20 years of me being sort of active in uh the literary community and just how um sort of bad we are 
at even figuring out what we should be talking about like the the sort of lack of shared um not values but certainly priorities of uh what what makes any of this better you know there there was a sort of vague idea that well if the literary community was just less sexist and racist it would be better and it is less sexist for sure i mean barely less racist um but that has that improved sort of representation um has that improved like a sort of uh variety of stories to be told about women and, and their lives and and you know who they might be no absolutely not it's just the same protagonist written in slightly different circumstances over and over again so you know admitting that okay well maybe that didn't work so great what might be the next thing that we can do like we just are stuck at nathaniel hawthorne said a bad thing about little women so we can't read the scarlet letter or anything else ever again oh man um so maybe the simplest thing is just to not read anything or watch anything and to just kind of stare at a wall and hope that your wall is not too problematic. Is your wall white? Because yeah. um, alas, <laughs> alas, in my context, I'm looking around. Yes, yes. Well, just to just to kind of tie this up, um, the I so obviously my favorite my favorite tweet from within this beef um, that erupted over why versus classics was the disgusting worms tweet. It will never be equaled. Um, but my second favorite is this one, which I, I think kind of, I don't know, it ties back to something about like the, you know, the infantilizing narrative surrounding women, um, the way that these conversations devolve into a particular kind of infighting and take on a particular kind of tone. And this is a tweet from Margaret Owen, who is a YA author. And uh, it says, I see literature Twitter. Literature is accented with little um, squiggly lines, like so that, you know, you're supposed to read it kind of fancy. I see literature Twitter has unsurprisingly taken the opportunity to take a conversation about race and the literary canon and make it about themselves. So let me say, you can performatively whine about YA all day. Your comp lit professor still won't leave his spouse for you. <laughs> I love this. That actually is very full circle with the Boston Review essay. Yes. Yeah, I think it is. I never wanted any of my professors to do that. No. Sorry. No. I, was, I was like, what? <laughs> they wish. No. But like. <laughs> I don't know. That's that. It, there was a lot going on there, but it was kind of interesting as fiction. Like it, it was, it summoned an image, you know? Yes. Yeah. It sort of reduces the whole thing down ultimately to this like battle for who gets the boy's attention. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's like the Bernie, Bernie gals who want the Bernie bros narrative from whenever 2016 i guess wasn't that gloria steinem who said that was it yeah who it said? was yeah uh, disappointing yeah she always is <laughs> <laughs> um all right guys do we have anything else to say on this topic oh boy i don't know probably but we probably shouldn't because yeah. i can just hold forth forever yeah and, uh, it's also it's also been like an hour and 23 24 
minutes. Well, um, unlike unlike certain fictional protagonists, it's time for me to eat something. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, but Jessa, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on our program. Of course. And um, once again, yeah, thank you, Jessa. Uh, you can read Jessa's work. Well, we'll, we'll leave a link in the show notes. Um, Jessa, do you want to like plug your website or your podcast website or anything? Nah. <laughs> nah. We'll, we'll plug All this right. for you. <laughs> She's like, you know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, this has been Feminine Chaos. Bye. Bye.